Impact of Influence, the Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. Matt Harris here, Seton Tucker here, as always, and so grateful that you're here, too. You can reach out. Impact of Influence on Facebook, the easiest way to find us. Hear from a couple of attorneys in this episode, including Joe McCullough, who represents a couple of the jurors who were in the jury box during the Alec Murdoch trial, and he is representing them. They've given affidavits about their thoughts on what occurred with Becky Hill and the jury. We will hear from him a little bit later on. Seton, there's an official filing by uh, Alec Murdoch's team. Right. We had seen this request for an evidentiary hearing, but now the defense team has officially requested a new trial. They've made a motion, put a ring on it. Um, And also there was another really interesting filing this week where the defense team has petitioned the Supreme Court of South Carolina to prohibit Judge Newman to preside over any future trial involving Alec Murdoch. That is a 265-page writ of prohibition, if you want to use the legalese. And speaking of legalese, we have John Snyder in now. He's been on the show many a time. Former defense attorney and a former prosecutor. Uh, welcome to the show, John. Thank you. I would say I'm more eased than legal, but we'll go from there. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get right to it. The first argument in this writ um, was that Judge Newman had personal knowledge of misconduct of the clerk of court. And I don't know if they're just trying to be nice, but they say they're not suggesting that Judge Newman did anything improper during the trial. However, uh, Miss Hill's actions make him a material witness regarding her conduct. So, John, uh, that part of the argument, as he might be a witness, how do you think that lands? So I'm going to set the table real fast for people to understand you've got the motion for a new trial. And then this this is like a pre-trial motion to that motion. And so the 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 defense counsel have asked the Supreme Court to ask Judge Newman or to, to order Judge Newman to not hear any case because they plan to use him as a witness in their hearing on a motion for new trial. So um, this is in massively uncharted, wildly beyond the, the legal norm and is a, is a legal gambit that, that may or may not pay off. And the, the way that they wrote this motion um, or petition uh, is so um, nuanced and parsed because it, it, on the one hand, they're saying Judge Newman is an amazing judge that did a great job. On the other hand, they're saying he was a witness to misconduct by the clerk of court. And we need to ask him about that and have him testify to that is, is part one. So let's move to, I guess, what we consider part two, 
The second argument that they yep. make. Yep. So the second argument that is made is that Judge Newman's comments to the jury violated uh, South Carolina Code of Judicial Conduct. And I think you've pulled it up. What does it I say? Do. Uh, it says, uh, a judge shall not, while a proceeding is pending or impending in any court, make any public comment that might reasonably be expected to affect its outcome or impair its fairness or make any non-public comment that might substantially interfere with a fair trial or hearing, the judge shall require similar abstention on the part of court personnel subject to the judge's direction and control. Goes a little bit more on from that. And then there's a commentary section. Uh, requirement that judges abstain from public comment regarding a pending or impending proceeding continues during any appellate process until final uh, disposition. Their second part of their, their argument specifically deals with comments that Judge Newman made after the jury, during the sentencing phase of Alec Murdoch's trial. And during this phase, he addresses the jury and he says, I will make no comment as to the extent of the overwhelming nature of evidence, but certainly the verdict you have reached is supported by the evidence, circumstantial evidence, direct evidence, all the evidence pointing to only one conclusion— and that conclusion you have reached. So I applaud you as a group and a unit and individually for evaluating the evidence and coming up with a proper conclusion. And that's one section of Canon 3, which talks about a judge shall not command or criticize jurors. Uh, and so that seems like that's exactly what was happening there. John, uh, I, I don't even know if most attorneys or people would be even uh, know about canon three or or do they because it's so specific to judges behavior that i don't know how, how well known is that I, I fogged up my reading glasses from crying over laughter at this argument so the the, the argument they're making is being made by two of the most public statement statementers Ever to make public statements, but but but, but they're attorneys. That's a different yeah, code of conduct than a judge. Specifically right. related to a judge. And so at the conclusion of the action, after the decision was made, so there, so it wasn't dependent. It wasn't pending any longer. No, no, the it was appealed. Had reached a verdict. Yeah, but there was an appeal. Yeah, we didn't know that there not, was going to be an appeal process. And on the, and on on that thing, I specifically read that uh, the judge is not supposed to speak until. All appeals are, are exhausted. Because you're appealing the decision of the jury and you're appealing the findings of fact or, or, or the sentencing. And that's and so using their logic, anytime a judge sentenced someone, they're speaking about the case while it's still pending. This is the most laughable argument in the entire matter. No, you're talking about, wait, you're talking about specifically the juror part, not, we haven't got into the comments that he made publicly on TV and, and whatever. We'll get that. Correct. You're talking specifically about the juror thing. When a judge or, or when, when a judge is on the bench and the verdict has been reached and, and the reason the rules there is so that, that, that he or she's not affecting the, the decision-making of the jurors. The juror's decision was cast, and he. That's fair. I, I, this is this is one of the most common practices for judges to let people know, "Hey, thank you for your service. 
based on the evidence, we see how you reach this decision. That's that is acceptable and not a violation of judicial canons. Okay. Well, I've been told that 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 it it is slightly unusual the way he he commented after the verdict came in and he addressed the jury. Like a little uh, more um, very aggressively going after Alec Murdoch, which is. Well, I mean, he told the jury they got it right. Right. Is that, I mean, is that, is it okay to say the jury got it right as opposed to I honor your decision? In my experience, that's pretty normal. Okay. Uh, You know, you've asked these people to give up a, a substantial portion of their lives uh, to, to participate in a jury trial. I think, I think some validation from a court official is, is okay. He didn't do it while the trial was going and he mm-hmm. didn't, he didn't, uh, issue comment about their evidence. Uh, he didn't, he didn't say anything, but he ran a clean trial. Okay. That makes sense that the judge can concur with the jury's decision and I don't want anyone to think that any of this is us criticizing Judge Newman because we've done nothing but applaud him. These are just the arguments that have been made. Um, so let's get into this third argument is that Judge Newman showed bias based on some of the statements he made uh, in the sentencing phase. And when he addressed Alec Murdoch, this is what he said. Matt, can you sure. read it for us? Yeah, one of the quotes used from in the filing about what Judge Newman said to Alec Murdoch was, you've engaged in duplicitous conduct here in the courtroom, here on the witness stand. But amazingly, to have you come and testify that it was just another ordinary day that my wife and son and I were out just enjoying life, not credible, not believable. You can convince yourself about it, but obviously you have the inability to convince anyone else about that. So if you've made any such arguments as a lawyer, you would lose every case like that. Does that, is there any thing in that that indicates any kind of bias to you, John? What's Newman's title? Judge. Judge, right? And a judge <laughs> is judging. And a judge has, in my opinion, every right at this stage of the trial to let both the defendant and the world know what he or she thinks about what he or she has sat there and listened to. And so I, I take umbrage at the least with people accusing judges constantly of bias, this and bias that if if, if, so, judge Newman said this case qualifies under our death penalty statute based on the statutory aggravating circumstances of two or more people being murdered by the defendant. I don't question the state's decision not to pursue the death penalty, but as I sit here in this courtroom and look around the many portraits of judges and other court officials and reflect on that fact, over the past century, your family, including you, have been prosecuting people here in this courtroom, and many people have received the death penalty, probably for lesser conduct. That is that is a a judicial official laying clear the egregious behavior of the defendant, and the sentence is dictated by statute, and he enacts the sentence pursuant to the law, and so this claim of bias is just 
oh, I didn't like what he said about my client. Therefore, he must be bad and, and shouldn't be allowed to hear any more cases. No, I, well, I disagree I, with that. But okay, I, I, but let me just, I don't know, devil advocate of the word, but try to understand. They might not be saying that he was biased during that trial. They're saying he's too biased to see this next stage, which is whether he should get a new trial or not, whether it was misconduct, because he's made it clear. And the financial crimes. And the financial crimes. He thinks that Alec Murdoch is a scumbag. So the the what I would imagine the argument it is, he hates Alec Murdoch so much and thinks he's such an evil person. How could he possibly hear anything to do with Alec Murdoch from here on out? Fairly. That's, that is the argument, right? So it's not that they're saying he was biased during that the trial. Is the, that is their argument. Okay. But it's, I disagree that a judge can't put that aside. Okay. To render a fair verdict. Okay. Fair enough. Let's go. I got you. I got you. Okay. So let's go on to this fourth argument is that Judge Newman's extrajudicial statements violated this. What was it? Three. Was it Canon 3? Canon, I think it's Canon 3. 3B or something like that. Um, and Judge Newman gave a speech to his alma mater, Cleveland State College of Law, and also to this Today Show. Um, and in the interview at Cleveland State, Newman says, in my mind, he loved his family. I don't believe he did not love his son, but he committed an unforgivable, unimaginable crime, and there is no way he'll be able to sleep. Um, and yes, he also admits in this interview that uh, admitting the financial crimes in the murder trial was controversial. And Judge Newman also gave another interview with Craig Melvin, Wofford graduate, which I am as well, uh, with mm-hmm. the Today Show. And uh, Matt, tell us what he says in that uh, interview. So he's talking to Craig, or Craig Melvin's talking to him. And Craig asked Judge Newman if he thinks that Alec Murdoch will be haunted by his wife and son. As Newman says, oh, I think so. He has to be. I can't imagine him having a peaceful night knowing what he did. I'm sure if he had an opportunity to do it over again, he'd never do it. So, John, uh, do you think it was appropriate for Judge Newman to give these statements knowing that an appeal was pending? I think that this argument, based on the case law, is probably a sufficient basis for recusal. Okay. Because the, the, the action is out of his court. It's, it's almost like there's this, this, this universe of the trial courtroom. And what I have found throughout this whole case, people talk way more outside of a courtroom than you see in your typical criminal case. Uh, including defense counsel, you know, state's counsel, witnesses. There's a, there's a lot more media here than, than in your average criminal case. And so after the case is over and you go on your book tour, you, you know, you, you do whatever that, that part of the post-trial uh, media blitz is going to be, I think then that's probably enough to say, okay, you've moved from being a judicial official to being a commentator. And that's, that may be what, what the Supreme court hangs its hat on. Well, 
let me ask you this. It, they filed, the defense filed this straight with the Supreme Court. Should they have filed something with Judge Newman first and given him the opportunity to respond to these uh, arguments? That is, they specifically address it in their motion where they believe that the Supreme Court is the place to file this based on the current setting of the case with it with it pending in the appellate court and with other motions pending they they file this this you know extraordinary writ in an extraordinary court because of the extraordinary circumstances so i'll i'll look forward to hearing other people's you know opinion of that but they they've cited firm legal grounds for doing this first all righty thank you john snyder former da former defense attorney and uh, we'll talk soon with you john thank you guys have a great great week you too man bye you too. bye all right gonna take a quick break and when we come back we'll be talking to attorney joe mccullough who is in the courtroom the entire time during the Murdoch trial. Silver he's Fox. The Silver Fox. <laughs> he's also been on the show before, and he has a lot of experience in South Carolina law, obviously. And he's also the attorney representing two of the jurors that were on Alec Murdoch's jury, and we will talk to him about all this and more in just a couple minutes. Let's talk about one of our sponsors. It is Factor. You can eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh meal is never frozen and it is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, and they are ready in just two minutes. What did you have chili the other day? Delicious. And if you want gourmet meals, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, asparagus. So head to factormeals.com slash impact50 and use code impact 5050 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code's impact50 at factormeals.com slash impact50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Impact50 at factormeals.com slash impact50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. Bringing our guest, been on the show before, 
Joe McCullough, seasoned litigator, former prosecutor, 40 years of experience. And of course, he went to USC Law School, like every other single person that we've talked to, I think, <laughs> uh, that uh, takes part in this whole uh, Murdoch deal. And he was also on the other side, uh, where he concentrated in areas of criminal defense and personal injury litigation. He is also a professor, and he is also representing two of the jurors in the Murdoch trial. All right, Joe McCullough, let's get into this. Your thoughts on the fact that it is official now uh, that Murdoch's attorneys have, well, they filed a couple of different things. Yeah, a motion for a new trial that was filed in, in Colleton County, and Becky Hill stamped it. Which um, is interesting to me, but yes. But then we also have the second thing that was filed with the Supreme Court, which was asking to prohibit Judge Newman to preside over any future trials involving Alec Murdoch. So what are your initial thoughts on this and what's going to happen next? Well, Matt and Seton, let me first say, as a, in the nature of a disclaimer, that obviously um, some of the occasions that I'm called or asked to comment on things or things about which I, I have a lawyer's view, but but no dog in the fight. In this matter, uh, I am involved to the extent that I represent uh, two jurors who have provided information under oath um, uh, to the defense that form a part of this mosaic. But uh, as you just said, the 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 motion filed yesterday was filed with the Supreme Court, uh, which essentially asks the court uh, to evaluate uh, comments by the presiding judge, Judge Newman, and uh, ask the court to disqualify him uh, on on several grounds, including uh, that he may be a fact witness to the underlying issue of, of whether there was uh, inappropriate communications with with jurors or the jury, and and otherwise evaluating the judge's public comments about the matter. And, and so, having said that, I, I you know I, I have to not speak specifically about anything other than I guess the process and and the rules that apply to this. If that if that's helpful to you, so yeah. It is. Well, let's talk about the process. I know in conjunction with this order to the Supreme or asking the Supreme Court to prohibit Judge Newman, there was also a motion to stay, which I guess is saying, like, let's hear this first. So what happens next? Well, the process in this matter is a little tortured, I guess, and confusing to the public or, or lay folks and probably to a few lawyers because it is so unusual uh, a a matter and so unusual a process that, that frankly the judiciary is having to kind of invent as we go along. The the defense first recognizing that the, the Alec Murdoch convictions were on appeal to the Court of Appeals had to ask the Court of Appeals to stay the appellate process and requested that the matter be remanded back to the trial court level. Uh, and that's the Court of General Sessions, which is the place that the prosecution occurred with Judge Cliff Newman presiding. So uh, the Court of Appeals did issue that order, I guess, two weeks ago, remanding it. 
that simply sent it back to the trial court level uh, for a determination, uh, well, for the permission for the defense then to file a motion for new trial, which you just referred to, Seton. And, and from there, um, the matter has to be assigned to a judge of, of the Court of General Sessions, logically the trial judge, which then stimulated this motion filed in the Supreme Court to have Judge Newman either voluntarily recuse himself or, or have him uh, disqualified by the by the Supreme Court, which is the you know the paramount authority for our judicial system and uh, and our judges. So that's kind of where we are at this point. I think that you know the Supreme Court has several options, I suppose, and I wouldn't presume to consider how they will approach this, but they certainly could, uh, I guess suggest that the judge voluntarily take himself out of the matter or the court could uh, spontaneously without any further arguments briefing uh, could issue an order one way or the other as to his ability to continue to to preside over this motion for new trial um, or, or they could have hearings have a hearing at which the parties come and, and argue their respective sides um, it would be interesting to see if that were to occur, whether, and I presume it would be the, um, either a special appointed counsel for the, uh, Judge Newman, uh, for the purpose of those arguments or the attorney general's office arguing, uh, in defense of, uh, Judge Newman's continuation in, as the judge in the case. Um, and that's goes to the heart of the argument by the defense as I read the 300 pages of mind-numbing coffee requiring uh, reading. But I think that, you know, the, the, the defense argues that that there are, that the law enforcement, SLED, uh, the Attorney General's office, are defending a verdict, not so concerned with the process that led to the verdict. And, and I think that, that um, you certainly can infer fairly from the document filed by the defense yesterday in the Supreme Court that they share that or they extend that concern to the trial judge, uh, fairly or unfairly. But um, once we get past this decision process that this motion raises, who will be the trial judge, then it falls to the trial judge unless the Supreme Court just takes this matter over completely, which they could do as the chief authority of, of the law and the judiciary, um, then a decision has to be made about what manner of investigation of these allegations contained in the motion for new trial. You know, how will that occur? What investigative body? Would it be SLED? Would it be some other law enforcement agency, you know, at the national level, we, we see frequent appointments of special prosecutors or special interrogators um, who, in theory, have n no dog in the fight, that proverbial dog in the fight, no bias, no nothing but a, uh, a, a, a mandate to seek the truth and reach final conclusions. 
to guide the court in the next action. So the whole darn thing is fascinating and, and without any real precedent that I can recall. So not but, something we see every day in South Carolina. Or, or, or Yeah. No, uh, happily, we don't see this every day. It is, uh, but we haven't seen anything like this case in South Carolina either. I So the... They'll, they'll first decide on the judge, and so who's going to preside over this. Will there be an investigation by whoever they assign first, or will there be some sort of evidentiary hearing? Yeah, because we've saw, we have we like, have this outstanding request for the evidentiary hearing. Yeah, so where is that? Is that? Yeah. Well, I mean, that is awaiting uh, a determination by the now the state Supreme Court to determine exactly who will make the decision? Who will who will preside over a proceeding to evaluate the contention by the defense that there was, I mean, jury tampering, inappropriate uh, uh, influence, or inappropriate communications? Call it what you will, but but I mean, either the Supreme Court will keep this matter and make that decision of what step is next and how the evaluation of the uh, defense uh, assertions are going to be done, or they're going to assign it to a judge. And the judge will then make those determinations about the process. I mean, we really, there is no playbook for where we are. So it could be many different things. The judge could say, let me hear both sides. Let me hear witnesses. Could be just go off of files. Then he could decide, or she that we need uh, some investigative oversight to do something before I even rule whether there's a new trial. So it could be many options here. I think it's clear that that there will have to be some kind of official proceeding, whether at the general sessions level with a presiding judge of the court of general sessions. And we have um, a, a lot of judges who are not involved in this case. Can you explain just to our listener what the Court of General Sessions, just so that they understand what that means? Well, we have three levels of court in our judicial system in South Carolina. We have the threshold summary courts, which are our magistrate courts and um, city courts and municipal courts, which deal with with offenses that don't uh, involve, well, they involve a, a limited amount of uh, jurisdiction. And, and then the next level is our uh, civil and criminal uh, courts of, of common pleas, which is the civil side, and the Court of General Sessions, which is the criminal side. And these are all offenses that include civil matters in excess of $7,500 in claim, and, and in criminal matters with a penalty that exceeds 30 days uh, in jail or fines of about $1,000, all criminal matters above that go to the court of general sessions. And and above that court, we then have uh, our appellate courts um, of the court of, uh, uh, court of Appeals and ultimately the Supreme Court. Now, at that same uh, level of the court of general sessions, the court of common pleas, we now have uh, the administrative law court that, that it's in particularly deals with uh, um, agency matters and so forth. But that's, I guess, the most simple explanation of our system. Thank you, Professor Joe. You can tell he's a professor. Okay, attached to the filings to the state Supreme Court, there was a letter 
from the legal expert and law scholar Gregory B. Adams, which supported Murdoch's position. Your thoughts on including that letter and why they did? Well, I, I think that the defense obviously concluded that to buttress and substantially support the positions that they were taking for this disqualification and or recusal, that consulting with and having this the opinion in the form of an affidavit of an expert in the area of, of uh, judicial and lawyer ethics made sense. It, it, I'm sure the defense feels that gives uh, their position greater weight than it simply being the defense contending this and that and the other. So that affidavit was uh, not icing on the cake, really, but but concrete foundation for their positions. And, and you know, Greg Adams has been around a long time. He's a retired professor from our law school where I teach, matter of fact. Um, he's well um, well regarded and, and esteemed in the area of, of uh, professional conduct rules and ethics. And, and you know, the underlying issue here is is rule 3.9 or three yep. uh, parentheses nine, which is our rules, uh, one of the several rules that apply uniquely to our judges at all levels of the system. And, and they, that rule is, is mentioned and quoted in the in the motion as well as in uh, Mr. Uh, Professor Adams' affidavit, and and it's you know it's pretty explicit and and I think problematic uh, here um, for the court in in evaluating these allegations, and the, and the rule says that while a proceeding is pending or impending in any court, a judge uh, shall not make public comments that might reasonably be expected to affect the outcome or impair the fairness of the process. And, and the, uh, the commentary, which is just uh, kind of an explanatory section of the rule, says that, that that prohibition of comment extends through the appellate process until the final conclusion of the matter. And, and so the defense is contending that that's where the problem lies here, and that's the justification for disqualification or, or, or recusal. So a judge can speak out about a case after all appeals and everything is done, but not before that process. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm not saying that. That's what the rule appears <laughs> the rule to says. say, and that, yeah. that's what yeah. uh, Professor Adams says the rule means. And so, and obviously, that has we never went through that appeals process for sure. It was only a matter of days before Judge Newman was well, the, speaking. The, the, the appeal had to be stayed in order for this process to yep. reach the point we, we find ourselves. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you, the rule is, is uh, you know, lawyers complain all the time about not having bright line rules and having ambiguity in uh, court opinions and so forth. But this rule is uh, fairly explicit. And the the commentary satisfies the question of when that prohibition is lifted. So, I mean, I think it, it presents a challenging uh, discussion, whether that discussion occurs by brief or by oral argument. 
that remains to be seen. You know, still another occasion when I may find myself pressing my pants, sitting in the <laughs> in the bleachers, watching another proceeding. <laughs> Your family will be like, okay, time for another Joe to ship off for a few weeks. Leave us, leave us be. <laughs> well, I, I hope it won't be several weeks. Yes, right. Never know. And I mean, all of this is, of course geared towards the defense belief that they should be entitled to a new trial. And I think that, uh, for me, it, it, it is about the process. It is about the purity of the process. And, and I forget who said it, but um, uh, even Judge Roy Bean, I guess, is the guy who is most frequently quoted as saying, let's give them a fair trial and then hang them. Well, yeah. That was a, a little bit tongue in cheek from a very tough old cowboy judge, but the fact is that our Constitution guarantees a fair trial, and and that means not only fairness of of the prosecution's conduct, the defense's conduct, uh, the judge's conduct, and the judge's fair and unbiased rulings. But most importantly, it means that the jury has to exist in a bubble that is free from interference um, or any kind of untoward communications. And, and, of course, the defense has been fairly explicit in what they say to be the problem here. Now, do you have any prediction on how long it will take the Supreme Court to rule on this? You know, Seton, I've not been a good predictor because, of course, I walked out of the courthouse when the jury walked out to deliberate and and said uh, to several of you folks in the media that I thought this was going to take days of deliberation. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know that I'm a good predictor of the future. My crystal ball went sideways on this trial. But so, I, no, I don't I don't know what's going to happen from here. I can't predict how quickly the Supreme Court will respond. But understand, we have, you know, five members of the court, and they will no doubt be discussing this in chambers. Um, there may be a diversity of opinion. There may, on the other hand, be a unanimity of how this should be handled. But I think they have to have the time to digest 300 pages of material, and, and it is a lot of a lot of pages of material. I've uh, oh. Transcripts and, and yeah. affidavits and arguments and uh, and and it is of course a matter of the most extreme public attention and uh, commentary, I guess, like this and and so it's it's a damned important issue and one that the to some extent I guess you could say the world is watching. Well, and we do have a little bit of a time clock ticking because we have Alec Murdoch's financial crimes set to be heard later on this month in, I believe, Beaufort County. So I don't know. Do we have to have a decision on this before that happens? I don't know that we have to have a decision on this in full. I, I suspect that, that there may be motions for continuance to, because I believe it is correct that, that Judge Newman is uh, scheduled to preside over that trial. Um, which is now, as you say, scheduled, but Judge Newman uh, officially must retire 
um, by virtue of our mandatory requirement of a age requirement, which frankly isn't all that fair because I know some wonderful judges um, who reach the mandatory age permission of the Supreme Court and continue to hold court. So, um, you know, some of our uh, excellent jurists now are, are over the age of retirement, but uh, you may not may not want an, you know, a 75-year-old airline pilot, but maybe you do. <laughs> they got a lot of experience in, in the same fashion. Judges who have maintained their uh, their reading and maintain their their uh, logic and faculties and temperament uh, shouldn't necessarily be barred by age. So, I mean, it's possible that Judge Newman will come back and continue to hold court, maybe after his retirement, even in this matter. But that is the issue. One last question to get you out. Uh, we pushed back against this theory, but there are people who like to say, it's a waste of money. It, why are we doing this? It's all taxpayer about taxpayer dollars. money, yeah. blah, blah, blah. They go on like that. What is your response to that kind of uh, rhetoric? Those are people who, who are not facing a criminal charge in a trial or, or don't have a family member facing a, a, a charge in a trial. Uh, because if, if they were, they would want the best, purest process, the fairest prosecutors, the fairest lawyers, the most competent judge and a jury that existed and considered their case in a bubble. Yep. So yep. to those people, I say, shut up. <laughs> I love Joe. Hey, Joe, I'll let you fly, man. I appreciate you taking time with us. Thank you. All right. See you guys. Hey, Joe, Joe. Bye. Bye. All right. And we have plenty more to talk about. This thing is ever evolving. We'll be on top of it. Uh, Matt Harris, Seton Tucker, Facebook, Impact of Influence. Always grateful, my friend. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. 
we navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.